everyone. Welcome to Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And we're here today with Danielle Scrimshaw, who's going to talk to us about her book, She and Her Pretty Friend. We have some content warnings for this episode. This episode will include discussions of historical and modern queerphobia and racism, and also one instance of mild swearing. If any of that is something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out our other content. We'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people on whose land we're recording this podcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and recognise that they are the custodians of an oral tradition far older than this podcast. I'd just like to mention that we are recording this interview in a library, so if you can hear any background noise of people chattering or doors opening and closing or anything, we apologise for that. Do you want to just talk a little bit about what the book's about? Yeah, I can do that. So it's um, it's a queer history of Australian women dating from around the 1840s to early 1980s. Each chapter kind of focuses on a different woman or time period, which I felt was important for the overall history of queer women's experience in Australia. And I it began as uh, an honours thesis while I was at Melbourne Uni, and then it just kind of developed into a book because I graduated and was still obsessed with these queer women. (laughs) So I just kept researching and writing and now here she is. Very good. And it's a very good book. I recommend to our listeners, if you can get a copy, that you should get a copy and give it a read. Um, So as you said, each chapter kind of focuses on the story Mm. of a different queer woman or group or pair of queer women. Do you have a favourite chapter or a favourite story you'd like to share from the book to give an idea of some of the content? I think I'm a bit obsessed with them all. but um, (laughs) It's like a favourite child. That's right, yeah. I think... um, I think my my default answer is probably the chapter on Lesbia Harford and Katie Lush, um, which some of your listeners might be familiar with because I remember listening to your Lesbia Harford episode when I was first researching her life. And I think they're still my favorites because when when I was writing it, I was I wanted to um, research more about Katie and understand more, like, where she was coming from. Lesbia was a poet around World War One era into the 1920s, and she was a socialist and, like I said, a poet, but she was mostly unpublished during her life. And while she was at Melbourne Uni studying law, she met Katie Lush, who was a philosophy tutor at Ormond College. And some have said that they had a relationship, but... I'm not sure if they did. Lesbia wrote poetry about Katie that's like indicates that she had a big crush on Katie, but I'm not, (laughs) but there's like nothing on, there's like Katie doesn't have any personal papers that we know Mm. of anyway. So it's hard to, it's hard to work out whether she reciprocated those feelings or if they just had like this one sided like friendship and love. So I'm not sure. So that's why I kind of wanted to learn more about Katie and I didn't, I wasn't able to figure out whether she did love Lesbia back. Some people said that she did, but she was a very cool woman in her own right. Mm. And she was kind of the one who inspired Lesbia's own politics and socialism. And she kind of brought Lesbia along to all of these meetings and everything. And Katie herself was, um, would do like public talks in suburbs like Richmond against um, conscription during the, 
the referendums and everything. So I've just been kind of rambling on about them, but I think that's they're my favourites. I have huge fondness for Lesbia. She was one of the very early episodes that we did. Yeah. And the whole reason was I was in my local library and on that like new books display they have at the front, there was a book of like a collection of poetry by Lesbia Harford. And I walked past and I was like, no way is she gonna be a lesbian. So I picked up the book just to see. <laughs> And it worked out well. Yeah. And then reading her poetry, the one that sticks in my mind is called The Electric Tram to Q, and she's taking the tram to Q to see her girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading it, and my partner lived out that way at the time, mm. and I was like, it's about me. I've been yes. on this tram. I'm yes. gay, and I've caught this tram. <laughs> so relatable. And because Katie Lush lived in Q, so... Uh, it's not confirmed that it is about Katie, but at the time she was writing a lot of poetry about yeah. Katie. So I think mm. I think she was taking the tram to see Katie Lush and Q. Yeah, much like you were taking the tram to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I would let you ramble about Lesbia and Katie for like a long time. But yeah, something interesting I thought about like that chapter specifically mm. and talking about Katie is that you're kind of researching an absence that like rather than the presence of something you're looking at someone and you're like this woman might be queer and you're kind of researching you're kind of researching an absence rather than evidence and that's i think very different to how you approach history when it's not when you're not looking into queer history and i wonder if you have any thoughts about that kind of working in the sort of spaces between it's history it's very it's very challenging yeah and i think that there was uh, some other chapters where i had to kind of yeah research the absence because there are other figures in the book like um cecilia john who was a suffragist um mm. a lot of these women who are like quite academic and educated and i know that they would have had lots of like letters or papers mm. around but it's just kind of like we don't we don't know where they are, whether they got discarded, that like their descendants threw them out or they're just somewhere in, in a box in a basement. But without all of that, I think it was mostly relying on like trying to build, to write a history of like their lives in that time and like the context of what was happening to kind of get a sense of, of how they did live their lives in like each very specific time period. So for someone like Katie – for someone like Katie, I use Trove a lot, actually. You just go into Trove, chuck in their names, and <laughs> yeah. see all of the newspaper articles that she, they're mentioned in. I think for Katie, I just I found a whole bunch, and I realized that she um, traveled overseas at some point after Lesbia married. It would have been in the early 1920s. She went overseas with this other woman called Brenda Sutherland, and Brenda was studying – they called it like home economics mm. and kind of like domestic domestic <laughs> science. Absolutely, they'll still call it home economics. Yeah, school. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was interesting that she was like like studying at a tertiary level. Mm. It, it was also kind of like personal hygiene and stuff like that. And so Brenda Sutherland went overseas, I think, to do more research. And Katie Lush accompanied her. And I wish I knew more about because I think they were away for about a year. Mm-hmm. And later. Brenda was listed in Katie's will and if if Katie's half-sister wasn't alive at the time um, that Katie passed away, then all, all of Katie's belongings were to be left to Brenda Sutherland, which I thought was, you know, that's, that's, not... quite, that's quite an intimate thing, right? Mm, yeah. Like, um, so I think I also got 
sidetracked off your question about research and the absences. <laughs> but I think, like, again, finding tiny little details like that mm. and kind of, like, trying to read between the lines and um, maybe sometimes it's, like, putting my own – I guess that is the risk because you kind of like put in your own sort of like individual bias in a certain way or like your own presumption. But there's a lot of speculation, which some historians don't like, but I think for something like queer history, Mm. it's needed. It's necessary at times. I think it's necessary. And I think what I think people don't realize a lot of the time is that there's a lot of speculation happening in other history too. Like I think people don't sort of look for the same evidence when they're trying to be like, was Napoleon heterosexual? Well, he was married to a woman. Cool. That's all we need to know. But the speculation is kind of there. People just aren't acknowledging it. Yeah. I think also with queer history, sometimes what we're not trying to, we're not trying to say these people were definitely queer, Mm. these women were definitely in love, having sex, saw themselves as partners. Sometimes what you're actually trying to say is, well, we don't know for sure that this was a queer relationship, but this shows us what a queer relationship could have looked like then. This shows us what queer women could have been doing then. Yeah. 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 I feel like you're sort of looking for like, here's a possible space for queer women. Yeah. I think it's about emphasizing the potential for a queer relationship Mm. rather than definitely, because a lot of the women I wrote, I wrote about in the book, there's no like confirmed Mm. evidence that they were queer or there was there's no evidence that they exactly had sex or like considered themselves queer partners but and those things are like just so like they're so personal and intimate that Mm. no one's ever going to know that it just seems very dismissive to be like okay well we can't prove that they were queer so i guess they were straight yeah yeah to take a bit of a different angle looking at your book you start your book as i think every australian history book probably should talking about first nations history how did you find approaching talking about First Nations history as a white Australian what was that like for you? Yeah I wanted to be very considered in how I approached it because obviously I don't have that lived experience as a as a white Australian woman so I didn't want to impose some sort of authority or like Mm. higher knowledge because I like I don't have that lived experience so I questioned my place in writing that sort of history but on the other hand I thought to leave it out entirely just because I was a white writer would also lend itself to a different sort of erasure Mm. because yeah, you can't write about an Australian history without referring to the actual history, which is um, first nations cultures. So I did want to write that with, and kind of use, rely on other people's voices more than my own. So I reference a lot of other um, queer first nations writers primarily throughout the text I think it's um it's probably the only chapter which has less and because throughout the book I like weave in my own personal narratives as well but with this one I didn't really I think I I think the only thing I did was kind of write about my perspective going through school and like the lack of education Mm -hmm. that we had in both queer history and first nations history um so I think I just wanted to prioritize other writers and other voices in that chapter and use their knowledge of queer history in Australia rather than um, just use it for my opportunity to be like, this is what I think. Mm. And um, yeah, so there's a bunch of writers that I refer to and everything that I hope readers would just follow up on and seek out further information from other First Nations writers. 
Hmm. Look, I obviously can't speak to this too much as a fellow white Australian, but I do think you struck that balance in the book really well of acknowledging First Nations history without speaking over or speaking about mm. First Nations people where it's not your place. Yeah, that's, that is good to know. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like it was actually, it's not something that you see done a lot, to mm. be honest. Like, mm. once you sort of move out of the area where people are directly writing about the early colonisation or you're reading books which are explicitly about Indigenous <coughs> history, it often doesn't even get mentioned. Or it's one sentence to be like, yeah, so there were Aboriginal people here for tens of thousands of years. Anyway, in 1843. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly right. And I think to sort of devote a whole chapter to kind of even just talking about how we should engage with that and how we want to engage with that is a pretty – it's a good thing to do and I think more people should be doing mm. it. It's a pretty big oversight, I think, broadly mm. in Australian history. Mm. Yeah. So I need to cough. <coughs> yeah, there was something else, and you sort of mentioned it briefly just now, that was something else interesting that I noticed about your book is that you really put a lot of work into kind of entwining your own experience with the experiences of the women that you're researching. And I think personally that's something we do a lot as queer historians. I think that we're kind of very placed to look for connections and to relate to the people we're researching did you have any thoughts about yeah I think I think I did that for uh, probably a few reasons one is that I just enjoyed writing like that yeah because I I I studied history and I also studied creative writing so Mm. like there was no other way I was going to write this book other than like a creative way so um and it's also a way of embedding my own queer history because I thought a lot about like how people make history and how we make queer history Mm. and everything. And I think I am a strong advocate for like documenting your own personal sort of archive and everything. And while I was researching the book, I was also kind of coming to terms with my own queer identity because I came out at university and then probably a year or two later I started researching this for my honors thesis so I was experiencing like a lot of like my firsts Mm. like first kiss and first date first girlfriend and everything while I was doing this research so I think I think part of me could like resonate more with certain aspects of women's stories like Katie and Lesbia or like Anne Drysdale and Caroline Newcomb And I don't know, I didn't want to shy away from that because I think every historian and every writer like puts themselves in their Mm. work and every historian puts themselves in their work through like their own lived experience and bias and interpretation of the evidence and primary sources. So I thought rather than kind of hide behind that, I don't know, like the wall of professional historian who doesn't put themselves in their work, I thought Mm. I'd just go all in and... Like, mm. I, I like to think that it's it's not a book about me. It's a book about these queer women. But I think as a as a queer woman in Australia, I just also wanted to, like, weave in my own stories throughout it. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways it is a very <clears throat> honest kind of way to do history. Mm. Like, you don't – there's no hiding who you are or what your interest is in this or kind of what your – for want of a better word, what your agenda is in Mm. researching this. I think it it almost does feel very honest compared to maintaining that kind of professional distance. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 
Also, kind of what you said about being a big <coughs> advocate for like making your own personal archive. I think this way of writing also situates your book within queer history really well. So in 50 years, if somebody's researching the history of queer women in Australia and they pick up your book, they're not only reading about, you know, Lesbia or Anne, whoever it may be, they're also able to say, oh, and this is the context this was written in. This is what was happening in Australia at this time yeah. in the 2000s in queer history. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And I feel like it's not fair for me to write about all these women who are mostly dead and don't have a voice for themselves. Mm. So I think like putting myself in there is just kind of sharing the load. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I kind of expose their lives, you can expose your Exactly. Life that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I feel like it does often feel very, this is completely off the cuff. We didn't prepare this question at all, but it does often feel very intimate to be researching and then like publicizing queer history because so many of the things you're talking about are things that people sort of worked their whole lives to keep hidden. Yeah. And so there's an interesting kind of tension there, I feel like, as a queer historian, where you're sort of doing, on the one hand, your best to respect these people and their experiences and give them a voice. But on the other hand, you're like, I know that in their lifetime, they would not have wanted me to do this. Yes. Yeah. Again, I think like a lot of, even outside queer history, I think like just history in general is dealing with that like ethical notion to be like, oh should I be writing about this? And yeah, these women don't have voices anymore because they're long gone and some of them don't have any descendants to speak on their behalf. So there is that question about whether we should or shouldn't write their history. But I think if, I think if you're doing it in a very like respectful way, like I said, with these women who can't, we can't tell for sure whether they were queer. They just kind of led their lives in like a, in a way that could have been, Mm. queer I'm not saying anything it was like I'm not outing them in a Mm. sense because I'm just like interpreting their their lives and their relationships which may or may not have been realistic or true and obviously all of these women would have their own views because everyone has their own perspective of their life and they all have like everyone has their own sense of how they want to be portrayed in biographies and memoirs and history so yeah, mm. I don't know. So in your book, you quoted the filmmaker A.P. Popjoy, mm. who said, know the queer elders in your community now, learn their stories now, reach out to them now and spend time with them now. Do not wait. And you obviously did speak to some older queer women in writing mm. this book. What was that experience like and what did you learn from them? Yeah, it was really lovely. And I, I really, re- I, I love that quote. And I also kind of put that in I quoted it in my book as a sort of like reminder to myself Mm. as well because um in a way I I wish I had done more interviews and everything and I think um what um they're saying is very important and to like to know our queer elders but also just to kind of acknowledge what they have done to lead us to bring us to this point where it is so like accepting like obviously Australia has issues with like there's always going to be a homophobe around but Mm. I think to where we are now it's it's um completely different to like the 70s or 80s and everything so I think having that respect is an acknowledgement is important and yeah I I interviewed a couple of women who went to the Pine Gap peace Mm. protest in 1983 and that was really fun um especially because one of the 
women I spoke to. Her name is Madge. And we just chatted on the phone. I think she lives in Queensland. But she was great. And she was just – it wasn't even really an interview. Cause it was just like – I was just like, I just want to hear about your experience going to this camp as a lesbian and she just went for it and just told me all these stories and everything. And every now and then she'd be like, Oh, I don't know if this is, if this is um, relevant to your book or anything, or I don't know if I'm giving you anything useful. I'm just like, and you're like, tell me, tell me, tell me. I'm just like, like, history doesn't need to be about like important, important world events and everything. It doesn't Mm. need to be like life changing events like sometimes history can just be about how someone lived their everyday life and how like they're just I just wanted to know someone's personal experience being at this two-week camp at protest camp at Pine Gap surrounded by other women and yeah she had the best time there and she rode rode her motorcycle from Sydney to um to Pine Gap I want to be her yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, and she, like, she was, I think she was, like, in her early 20s at the time, um, was just coming into her identity as, like, a queer woman, and she heard about the protest from, like, some other students at her uni, and she thought it sounded fun, so she went ahead and she had this new motorbike. So And then she goes to in the middle of the desert and with this motorbike and everyone thinks she's like hot shit. (laughs) And she was just like, Oh, I did really well there because everyone wanted to, you know, like flirt with this, the hot woman with a motorbike. So yeah. So yeah, it's really fun talking to people and like learning about their stories and yeah, even if they think it's not, it's because it's their lives. So they Mm -hmm. might just be like, Oh, it's, it's pretty boring and normal to me, but it's like, it's fascinating to know like to know people's experiences even if like it was only like 50 years ago um, 80s isn't 50 years ago 40 years yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's better that you said 50 and not 10 it's the 90s right yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> i think that is one of the great things about doing queer history is because all you're looking at is like queerness which can manifest in any place time any aspect of someone's life you get a chance to like deep dive into so many different personal stories and so many Mm. different parts of history rather than having one narrow focus yeah Mm. and i think it's also a big sort of shift that's been happening in the practice of history Mm. over the last kind of 50 years or so sort of where we're moving more towards looking at that kind of everyday stuff, small scale stuff, personal stuff. And I know I often find that when you speak to older people about history, especially if they're not historians, they remember history Mm. from high school, but that's it. That what they think of it is they're like, okay, history is the big names, the big dates. When did the war start? Who was the king? Yeah. Um, And if you ask them about their day-to-day lives, that's not history. And they're very kind of surprised, I guess, that you think it's important. Mm. Yeah, because I think that's kind of what, like, social history is and which is kind of like a a new sort of way to write history. So, but, yeah, if if all you have to rely upon is, like, high school history, then, yeah, that's not – it's not, like, the nitty-gritty of everyday life. It is the, Mm. the big events and the big – yeah names which are usually white men so yeah. yeah do you have that conversation with people all the time where you're like I studied history and they're like oh I could never remember all those dates yes <laughs> and you're yes. like I've never it's, remembered a date in my life exactly it's just like I don't know dates or like usually sometimes it's funny like I'll be just watching like any 
random game show or like trivia show on TV and they'll have like a history question and my dad will be like, go on, you studied history. What's the answer? <laughs> I don't know. For one thing, they're talking about like American history or something. I'm just like, yeah. People yeah. think that you study history for three years and you suddenly know everything. You're like an encyclopedia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm like, I actually know like 400 things about this one period (laughs) of history. Don't ask me anything (laughs) else. I feel like there is often, especially for for queer people, because it's so not talked about as you're growing up, there's this tendency to feel like when you figure out that you're queer, that you're the first person who has ever Mm. done this and your queer friends are the first queer community that's ever existed. And so I think because of that sort of hidden nature of queerness, there is this real tendency to have a big generation gap. So young queers don't speak to older queers and vice versa. And you really notice that in kind of the changing language between kind of, you know, the way that queer identities and gender and things like that are talked about. The language changes almost to the point where it's really hard to talk across that gap. Yeah. Um, Hmm. There's this really, just to go on a tangent, there's this really good moment in AP Popjoy's documentary about Phyllis Paps and Francesca, I've forgotten her surname. Curtis, I think. Francesca Curtis, there we go. Um, AP Popjoy is non-binary and they start the documentary not out or not knowing they're non-binary. And at some point in kind of working with these older queer women, talking about queer women, they have to stop and go... I'm not a woman mm. and they're quite like apprehensive about telling the older women this and the older mm. women are like that's great good for you no problem yeah, yeah. and I think that that's another thing about the queer generation gap is because you assume you're the first you assume that even the older queer people are still not going to be accepting in some way yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah, and doing things like you've done where you actually go out and talk to them and write it down and be like look this we had a great chat on the phone even just like putting that in the book I think really helps break down that barrier yeah Yeah, and I definitely know that there are a lot of, like, older sort of butch lesbians and lesbians in that kind of mask-presenting area who, if you speak to them about it, will say, maybe if I'd been growing up today, I would have called myself non-binary. But Hmm. they grew up in a different context with different categories. I know Judith Butler is one who's like, I'm really having a nice time with they, them pronouns at the moment. (laughs) Um, But they always sort of, I think earlier saw themselves as a lesbian yeah yeah um so i know there's there's a big change there's been a big shift in the way we talk about those things and i think crossing that divide can be really important work um and yeah on that note is that something that you found difficult when you were talking about sort of the less gender conforming people in this book i know you've got a chapter where you mention a couple of people who you were like maybe this person is non-binary or a trans man or yeah um yeah that was another kind of challenging chapter to write because just the way to consider these people when at a time when labels like gender identity labels, even sexuality labels didn't, they went around. Mm. Or if they were, they were so different. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. They were like entirely different. It was an entirely different language. So there are these, I write about these people who like were, were born, were born female, but lived their lives as a man and like presented as a man and everything. And I also write about people who kind of like could have been genderqueer or non-binary because they throughout their life they present as both like a woman and a man Mm. at different points 
So, it, yeah, it is very challenging. And I think there's like a, some other great trans historians who write about it in such like a lovely nuanced way. Um, I think it's like that other part where I didn't want to leave it out entirely mm. because I think the history is important. And I think also I question whether to write about these um, potentially trans men figures, like trans male figures, because I was just like, ah, oh, is it part of like Australia's like queer women's history anyway? Mm. If they've lived, if they presented as a man, um, then I'm just like, am I sort of misgendering them by putting them in my book about queer women? But I thought it's interesting as well because like it's 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 still kind of like it kind of like lends itself to lesbian history because um the of the way that people like kind of projected their own thoughts and everything Mm. so while these like people were like no I'm a man other people were like you're a lesbian like Mm. you're sleeping with this woman you're they didn't they wouldn't say lesbian they would they would have said like invert or something yeah um but yeah so I I still feel like it kind of gender and sexuality are so like like then can weave in and out and everything and I think um it's still just so fascinating the way that people presented, but also the way that other people like viewed them and also wrote about them and how historians have written their histories previously. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is. And again, I feel like we, this is my, you know, my soapbox. I feel like we almost, (laughs) we have a sort of problem in queer history and in queer community where we tend to want to divide things up, Mm. where we tend to want to talk about older queer people and lesbians Mm. and trans people, trans men, trans women, non-binary people, all of these sort of separate, very distinct categories. And when you look at your book, I feel like it sort of flowed very smoothly to be talking about trans masculine people in the same book as you were talking about like sapphic women because they share the specific experience of people expecting them to follow social norms for women yeah and doing something and trying to live yeah. a life that challenges that mm. um and so i feel like it seemed very natural but when then when i thought about it i was like this is this is i feel like this might have been a challenging choice for you <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think how you've just put it is, like, exactly right, like, better words than I could have used because, um, yeah, exactly, they sort of shared those experiences and everything and Mm. I think it was – I included them more because of, like, how – how they sort of still contributed to queer and lesbian history even Mm. though they did present themselves and, like, live as men because of just how, like, the way that they had to live – their lives and kind of walk around these social boundaries and everything. And then even after their life, they were still sadly written about as like as women and everything. But I think, I think it was just interesting to see how it kind of also provided a different view of how lesbianism was kind of considered at the time because these people were just as soon as they found out that they were women they were like oh they must be lesbians Mm. or inverts so then automatically that kind of like pushes them into the lesbian history category because even yeah yeah, it's it's very complicated and there's no like right or wrong way to Mm. do it I think but um yeah I definitely wanted to include them because also like the stories are really interesting as well and I have a lot of respect for these people who could go like decades and marry like um, Edward D. Lacey Evans married three times mm-hmm. and um, Jack Jorgensen 
lived around like ben, like lived in Bendigo region for years and people just people were like just knew that these people were men and even after they died some people like had trouble reconciling this idea of this guy that they knew was actually a woman all along and they're just like wait no that that was jack like what do you <laughs> yeah what do you mean like yeah so yeah it always makes me laugh when you see historians talk about those sort of transmasculine figures who have married and they're so convinced that somehow the wife must not have known. Yeah. And I'm like, no, she knew. Yeah. She was fine with it. That is the most <laughs> likely explanation. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, like that kind of, the, like the wives themselves are part of that queer history. Yeah, yeah. There's not, a, there's not heaps written about them, but like surely like three wives, I, th- I think that's funny as well. I'm just like maybe one, maybe one wife was mistaken or, or tricked not tricked but you know like maybe she was just like oh I didn't know this about you but not all of them uh, yeah I'm like you don't have you don't have three <laughs> wives who have never noticed that you're trans no way it doesn't no way. happen and I think it's just like so um like it's unfair to the women themselves yeah. it's kind of making them like almost like silly to just yeah. like oh such a silly woman didn't even know that their husband was trans yeah and it always feels to me like they're so unwilling to believe that there's somebody out there who is attracted to a trans person yeah. that they're way more willing to believe that this woman just never noticed that her husband yeah. had no penis yeah exactly yeah and I'm like one of these things is <laughs> possible I think it also probably comes from the fact that people often consider queer people in history in isolation Mm, and queer people in history you know so often they have a community or they of other queer people or not queer people that support Mm. them and historians can't always get their head around that because they think it must be all about hiding and fear and not revealing your true self and isolation yeah i think that I feel like we're just talking to each other now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think that kind of feeds into that sense you often have as a queer person that you are the first time there's been a queer community. Yeah, exactly, yeah. (laughs) There's been so many first first queer communities out in the world. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. Every time you're the first schoolgirl who's ever had a crush on her friends. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We all have to live through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully one day not. So this is, speaking of firsts, I think, the first full-length book about queer women's history in Australia? Would that be true? I I think it is. Yeah. The only other book that um, is, like, exclusively about um, women's history is Rebecca Jennings' book, Unnamed Desires, Mm -hmm. which is a small but humble book about um, queer history in Sydney. And... It's really, it's a really great book. I would recommend it. It's talks. It um, Rebecca Jennings did a lot of like oral histories, mm. so lots of interviews with women and um, their experiences with like um, just being queer in Sydney and growing up in Sydney. There's um, lots of great stories about like Sydney's first gay bars and lesbian bars. So, but other than that, I think I think my book is the first to um, incorporate like cover most of Australia anyway. I don't I don't have any stories from like Perth, sadly, or the Northern Territory. Oh, I guess Pine Gap counts. But yeah. So which is surprising. I think that's kind of partly why I wanted to write it because there wasn't really anything else. And while doing the research, you're just kind of kind of like 
grabbing all this information mm. from different sources and trying to like looking at looking at books that are completely irrelevant to queer history but just because you found a lead on some woman and you're trying to follow up like I read like a lot of random books about like communism and yeah. like even just like social histories of the 90s and everything and lots of like feminist books which have like chapters of these women and there'll be like a chapter about like Andrei Sell and Caroline Newcomb but they're not mentioned as queer in that chapter mm-hmm. but it's just yeah following lots of leads and also lots of like journal articles that you can only really get if you pay a lot of money or have access to like your university like database so I wanted to write something that was like a kind of go-to resource and was easily accessible for Mm. people yeah and even I think even when you can access the resources Mm. like a lot of those articles you can access through the state library and things like that Mm. it just takes so much sort of knowledge to use it yes yeah. you have to know so much about how to navigate it and mm. what's out there in order to find what you're looking for yeah yeah nobody's ever going to just wander through a bookshop and happen to see a journal article but <laughs> a bookshop and see this book yeah yeah did you feel any pressure kind of knowing that this was the first book of its kind in australia any pressure to like get it right or cover everything or anything like that mm. i think so and i think i naturally put pressure on myself mm. as well which i think a lot of writers do yeah um yeah so I kind of when I feel like when I first started thinking about it as a book I wanted it to be like this comprehensive history but then as I was doing the research I was just like there's no way Mm. I'm there's just there's no I don't think there's a comprehensive anything for history because there's always more to find and I do acknowledge in the book that there's a lot of there's still a lot of gaps that I couldn't um I couldn't fill a lot of the stories in this book of of white women and like Mm -hmm. um, colonists and everything. But, and I thought, I thought that there must be so much history out there of like um, migrant women as well as Mm -hmm. first nations women and people. So I'm not necessarily the person to go out and research and write those stories, but it's definitely something that's lacking in the, in like the general historiography that I hope one day someone um, will take on as a project. Yeah, so I did put a lot of pressure on myself, but hopefully it's it's a contribution to the history. It doesn't need to be like the yeah. end all, like the staple book of lesbian history. Like hopefully, I'm, I hope that there will be more so that I can enjoy and read and learn more. <laughs> even after writing it, I've like learned of other women that I could have included mm. in the book and I'm like well it's too late for that but maybe a, maybe a second volume when I can when I have yeah. time and energy <laughs> it's like how when they publish big dictionaries they'll publish like an addendum mm. afterwards of all the new words that have appeared since yeah. then yeah it's like yeah. that but for queer women yeah. 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 I always feel like there's less pressure when you're the first person to do something because you're like no matter what I do it's better than what's already here it's true, true yeah it's a good way to look at it. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned this already, saying you'd love to see people do more migrant history or more First Nations history, looking at the experiences of queer people and queer women. Is there anything else you hope to see in the future of queer history in Australia in the next five, ten years? You'd think that I have a ready answer because <laughs> I've been working on this for years, but I don't. I know that later in, I think later this year, there'll be a book about trans history written by Noah Reisman. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That's good. So looking forward to that because, again, that's another another thing that needs to be 
written and discussed. Mm. So that'll be good. I think trans history is kind of the next big gap in Australian queer history. Mm. And it's I ridiculous mean, that women's history is still a big gap in Australian yeah. queer history <laughs> in 2023. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like you say that. You're like, trans history is the next big gap. And I'm like, hold on a second. It's all gaps. There's <laughs> still, still so many gaps. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't even say that, you know, white men's history is done. Like, no. it's not covered. <laughs> yeah, especially, like, working class men's history, I feel like, mm, in Australia. Good. I think yes. there's a lot to say about sort of the 20th century period that just hasn't been and rural as well i think yeah history yeah. has a tendency to be very city focused yes for yeah. you know a whole number of reasons yeah this is where we find each other <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're here at melbourne uni like lesbia Huffman. yeah <laughs> so on a more personal note what's next for you now you've written this book um it's funny, I keep getting this question. <laughs> yeah. And I'm actually, I'm working on a novel, so I'm oh. taking a break from nonfiction and all that research and footnoting. Well, partly I just need, I need to find something else that's going to absorb me for like another five years to write a nonfiction book. Yeah. I like had a draft of a novel before I wrote She and Her Pretty Friend, but obviously I got a book deal, so that took priority. And now I'm just finding time to Right. It's the the novel is going to be queer as well. It's gonna be a queer woman's story just made up. <laughs> <laughs> a queer woman's story that I didn't have to research. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> is it historical? No, well it's historical in the sense that it's set bef- like pre COVID because I don't want to write a novel in <laughs> pandemic Very setting. I feel like we're gonna see a lot of historical novels set in like twenty seventeen in the next few years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> nobody wants to handle that. Yes, yeah. Because yeah. I think like the the novel's going to be I started writing it while I was at uni as well. I was so prolific at uni. Um, <laughs> oh, I was the same. I have like multiple novel drafts. Because from you had that so period. much time. You had so much time. I did the same yeah. in lockdown. When we were in yes. lockdown, I was like stuck at home and I was like, oh yeah. I'm doing all this. I'll write another book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Oh my god. Yeah. Sometimes we just need like another mini lockdown to, I know. to work on a few projects. I know. I won't but... lie. Sometimes I'm like, can we just lock down again for like four weeks? Yeah. Can I just call up Daniel Andrews? <laughs> like, please, Dan. For me. <laughs> Deadline, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say to anyone listening who's interested in queer history, who's read or planning to read your book? Definitely go out and buy it. It's a. <laughs> it's a. It's a very good book. I think. <laughs> I agree, and it's a very readable book. It's it's, it's super readable, enjoyable yeah. book. The stories are very fun, and there is a bibliography at the end, like as a little bonus feature, if you want to go out and read more queer books and articles, because there's so much out there. Thank you very much, Danny. It's been lovely talking to you. Uh, we both very much enjoyed reading your book, and I hope that all our listeners will enjoy this and enjoy the book as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. No problem. Yeah. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our episodes on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you listen to us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate it if you leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, because that helps us to reach a wider audience. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. If you'd like to support us financially, you can become a patron of Queer as Fact on Patreon, and you'll get perks such as the chance to vote on episode topics, 
access to bonus episodes and our monthly Queerest Facts newsletter about what's coming up and what we're up to outside of this podcast. You can also get some Queerest Fact merch if you visit our Redbubble store, where we're also Queerest Fact. And you can find links to our social media, Patreon, Redbubble, and other info about the podcast at our website, queerestfact.com. We'll be back on the 1st of July. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then.